Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Jay Parson and Michael Baranowski. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week is, as always, Cleveland attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson, the man to see for all your commercial litigation needs. In this week's episode, Jay interviews me about my book, Navigating the News, a political media user's guide. Hi, uh, today on Politics Guys, we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, I am going to be doing an interview of uh, my co-host, Mike, and uh, his book, uh, Navigating the News. Uh, Mike, uh, I guess, again, this is a little strange, sort of self-congratulatory. Absolutely. Uh, uh, perhaps even uh, onanistic uh, to some extent. Whoa, well, okay. Uh, look, 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 look that up, people. Um, uh, but let's, let's start of uh, why did you choose uh, the media to write your first book about? Well, it uh, goes back for many decades, actually, uh, when we were actually in college together at, at Baldwin Wallace. Uh, I happened to pick up a book by a guy named Neil Postman, uh, who wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to to Death, one of probably the three or four best books I've ever read. And it's one of those books that sort of changed the way I understood media and politics. And over the years, when I went and became a political scientist, politics and the media was a a topic that I taught uh, a lot. And I used that book, and there were four three or four other books that I started to use. There's a book by a guy named uh, 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 Manju called True Enough, a book called Unspun, uh, a book called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Dan Kahneman, who I think won a Nobel Prize or something like that. He was an economist. And a lot of that behavioral economist stuff about how people are irrational and that sort of thing. And then Nicholas Carr a few years ago came up with a book called The Shallows about how the internet is destroying our brains, that sort of thing. And and so I would use all of these books in my classes, but it was a lot of stuff for people to deal with. You know, and assigning five books didn't exactly make me terrifically popular. And the books weren't exactly what I wanted, so I thought, well, why don't I write my own book? Yeah. And so that's what I did. I basically tried to take the best of what well, what I thought was the best of all those books and put it into one slim, accessible volume, and it saved my students a lot of money. And I got to say, hey, read my book. So uh, and that, It made you some money. Yeah, well, uh, I still haven't paid back <laughs> my uh, not-at-all-impressive advance yet, So, but they haven't come after me. So uh, that's that's good. Yes, my sales are in the hundreds. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> well, that's well, after this, I'm sure it's good. And, and I, I will say, and I'm not saying just because you're my my friend and co-host, but uh, in reading it, it is it's as as texts go, it, it's really enjoyable. It's it's uh, uh, very conversational. It's fun. It's uh, uh, there's there's this sort of uh, sense of humor that uh, uh, you know permeates uh, permeates this. Um, you know, one of the things you, you touch on in the in the book, and you sort of mentioned it uh, about the shallows. Uh, and this goes back even to the, you know, Marshall McLuhan uh, statement that the, the medium is the message. Uh, the way we get our news uh, really uh, uh, has, a, has a huge bearing on how we understand it. And, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that uh, in terms of uh, the information density, I guess, that you get from, from various sources. Sure. Uh, well, most people still get their news from 
TV. And um, I argue in the book that that's probably one of the worst places to get your political news from for a number of reasons. One of those has to do with that information density that you're talking about. Uh, there's just you can there's simply a lot more information in printed media. Uh, and, and not only is there more information, but uh, print media requires more focus of us. And the more focused you are, understandably, the more uh, you're able to take in and retain. And most of us, when we're watching TV or listening to the radio or a podcast or something like that, are doing other things. Our attention isn't exactly focused. And so that really affects what we can take in. Uh, and not not only not only that, but there's the there's the factor of uh, what I what I call the speed uh, the speed factor the speed component, meaning that uh, we're sort of subject to the speed of whoever's talking at us when we're listening to media on TV mm-hmm. or on uh, or on the radio, whereas. Uh, when we're reading things, we are able to slow down and speed up. And in fact, there have been a number of studies done that saying that even if we're not aware of it, we automatically slow down and speed up even by you know tiny increments to uh, take in things that are a little more difficult and that sort of thing. And that's that's the kind of thing that's not available to us. So yeah. for all oh, of those reasons – go ahead. It, well, I was going to say something I, I, I noticed, that, and this I picked up on uh, in the book where you talk about that, those issues, is that so many news, internet news sources are going now to more video, uh, you know, click and click and watch. And and personally, to me, that that drives me nuts because I I don't want to sit and listen to a story. I just want to be able to read through it right uh, as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, I mean, is is your sense that? that even the internet is moving more away from print and more to video. Absolutely. And I think I, I share your frustration and you have, I, you and I of course came up in an age before all of this. And so maybe that's just a function of our, you know, of our middle agedness. I don't know, but well, we're also just kind of weird generally. That's, I mean, that's uh, a good know, point. I mean, yes. Sort of... Yes. That's a good point. But uh, yeah, I think there is more of that certainly than in the early days. And, and part of it is just the technology is, is easier and people have, you know, more and faster connections. And so it's more possible. But I think that gets to an important point about, uh, about another difference between uh, politics on video and politics in print is videos easier it's more accessible. It tends to be more uh, more engaging than print. Again, you know, print media demands more from you, more of you, and a lot of people aren't willing to put that in. And so it seems it's certainly more engaging on the surface, and people feel that they're being well informed. And this is the dangerous thing, I think, is. When people get their media or their political information from a, a lot of video sources, they can feel that they're being well-informed, but in many cases, that's not actually true. And so you have people who think they know what's going on, but they only have this very sort of surface knowledge of thing. And that's that's one of the things that, in fact, Nicholas Carr talks about a lot in his book, The Shallows. Okay. Well, something uh, else that the internet has has brought about is the explosion of uh, opinion journalism, um, and in fact, we're we're probably you know part of all that. That <clears throat> now any any two random guys in the world can put together a podcast. Um, sure. What what are I mean? And I, I see that as sort of a, a pro anacon. And in the one hand, it's it's almost as if we're going back to. Uh, sort of the old uh, tradition of journalism at the time of the, the colonies and, and up through uh, early federal period where there were just sort of pamphleteers uh, who would, uh, you know, put their views out and uh, all over the place. Uh, the 
you know, and on the one hand, I suppose you have more proliferation of views, but you also probably have uh, less actual information. And I wondered what what your thoughts were on that. Is 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 this a getting better or getting worse sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, it's one of those. Uh, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times sort of things. I think for people like uh, people like you and, and me, people who are you know have been politically engaged and active uh, for a long time, this can be a great time uh, if you know what to look for, if you know how to sort through all of the junk out there, and that that's. The worst of times element of it is there's so much junk out there. There's so much, uh, you know, generating heat just to generate heat, you know, without any real uh, information or useful information. That's why I think, uh, you know, we are two random guys with a podcast, but I think we're different. And this podcast is different in the ways that we don't try to generate controversy to generate controversy. You know, these are two, I feel, fairly reasoned, intelligent views coming at things from different angles. And so I think that illustrates, you know, I, I think we illustrate the best of what internet media can be, at least in regards to politics. Well, no, yeah, no dispute there. We truly are the, the best of, of internet media. Absolutely. Uh, but on, on uh, some of those, and this actually you didn't touch on the book, and it might have been just because, you know, you wrote it, what, two years ago? Yeah, it, it came out, yeah, it came out a couple years ago, yeah. Uh, but social media uh, now, getting news through through social media and the sort of the proliferation of kind of political memes. Uh, I mean, again, you didn't touch on this on the book, but, but what are your thoughts on, on that, if any? I, mean, if it's- I think it's just a continuation of the trend because that sort of, that sort of political information tends to be even more shallow than the sort of thing that we got pre-social media, you know, what can you fit into 140 characters, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And and so, again, it's people get, maybe they get a headline or they get a, a brief impression, but that's certainly not enough for people to dig in and really understand. And, and, and again, I come back to this, I, I've mentioned this point a number of times in the book, it's dangerous, of course, to have citizens in a democracy that are uninformed. But it's even more dangerous to have citizens who are uninformed and think they're informed. And I think that's what we have more and more of these days. And, and I think there's, there's studies that have shown that, uh, both just in information and sometimes of the skill level right. of, of the people who are absolutely the least informed are, are the uh, most uh, – or, or maybe, maybe it's misinformed that they're the most uh, – rate, rate their own abilities sort of yes. the highest. Yes, the people who are – yeah, the people who are the, the least informed oftentimes tend to think the most highly of their information or the most misinformed, yeah, which is not what you really want. Is, is there – looking back, in the book you, you talk about sort of a, a golden age of – and I, 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 maybe that's overstating it, golden age, but the idea that um, – you know, journalists uh, ought to be impartial, that there ought to be, a, you know, it ought to be about objective truth uh, and so forth. I mean, that's that's really, in, in, in terms of history, a fairly recent event. Um, do you think that voters were better informed and made better decisions 50 years ago? Than than uh, than they do today. That's a it's a tough question to answer, certainly. But I think that uh, I, I think that it, it's uh, well again, it's a hard hard thing to say. But I think probably because and, and, I, and I'll I'll sort of argue a part okay. of it for you. I mean, on the one hand, you have things like uh, I mean, maybe the the uh, you had more reliance on print. You had uh, more 
dedicated right. uh, reporters who were were uh, reporters by by trade. Uh, you know, I mean, the ink stained wretches sort of who were out doing this. You had voices of authority like Walter Cronkite, and and it wasn't sort of the celebrity uh, 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 talking head sort of thing. Uh, but also at the same time, um, you, you you know, not everyone had uh, the New York Times at their fingertips or the right. Wall Street Journal at their fingertips. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe you know, they relied more on, on national network news. Yeah. Uh, I, well, I think, you know, there are a lot of things that were going on. Is, is Certainly back in the day, people took their cues from different places and they got different types of information. The electorate was somewhat smaller, especially if we go back 50 years ago. And, of course, the more we expand the electorate and the more we ask people, almost demand people to vote, the more – less informed voters were going to get. And in fact, there's a, you know, there's an argument that uh, one of the problems of our sort of democratic society is too much democracy. And that if, if you haven't listened to the, the politics guys interview from last week, it's a great interview with a guy named uh, Kirby Goodell, who has a book on that. And it's really kind of a fascinating argument in that one of our problems is that we have too many uninformed, irrational people going to the polls. And one suggestion for a way to solve that is, well, have fewer people going to the polls. The other suggestion is try to educate people a little bit more. But that's that's really a tricky thing because there's this assumption that education is going to solve the problem. And the assumption, of course, is that the problem is an ill-informed public. And while that's true, the bigger problem, I argue in the book, is irrationality. It's, it's, so it's – yeah, it's not a matter of people aren't getting the data. They're not processing the data correctly. Right. They're, they're not processing it correctly. They're, uh, they're ignoring the data. They're cherry-picking the data. And this isn't, you know, this isn't just limited to people who aren't that intelligent or involved. In fact, the people who are often the best at creating rationalizations and cherry-picking the data to support their points are actually the smartest people. Because they're just better at creating those sort of things and coming up with those, you know, rationalizations and justifications for their pre-existing views. And so that's the real problem. And that's a difficult problem to solve because there's been a ton of uh, a ton of research in behavioral economics and psychology that just makes it very clear that once people have a set view about something, it's incredibly difficult to change that view, which is what makes compromise uh, so difficult in politics in many cases. Yeah, and you also uh, on that that same note talk a lot about, and this is something that I'm I'm a big fan of again because because I'm a little weird, but uh, logical fallacies uh, mm-hmm. that are put out there in in the media, uh, and and that uh, some some I guess are, are fallacies that uh, by argument that uh, people some you uh, someone is intentionally misled. Uh, other times I think it's just errors in thinking. Um, uh, but I, I wanted you to talk about sort of your favorite logical fallacies that, that you see most often in the media um, and what, what you can do to, uh, to recognize those and, and combat them. Sure. Either yourself or in the, the idiots who post on your Facebook page. Right. Well, I, I think w- one thing to point out is that almost all of these fallacies are harder to detect in, in TV or radio than they are in print because, again – that the message is just being forced past you and you can't you know slow down and control it but i think the 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 fallacies the the bad arguments that i tend to see the most in political media uh, probably the most common one is uh the uh 
the post hoc fallacy is one of the mm-hmm. big ones, and that's uh, I'm, I'm sure you know that, of course, being right. being familiar with Latin. But that's basically the the argument that I make sometimes. For instance, if we take a look at unemployment uh, in October of 2008, unemployment was 6.5 percent in this country. In November of 2008, Barack Obama was elected president. In October of 2009, one year from you know that first date, unemployment was 10 percent. What do a lot of people conclude from that? Well, the election of President Obama made unemployment go up. That's the post hoc fallacy. Yes. Essentially that arguing that if one thing comes after the other, that first thing must have caused the second thing. And in many cases, that's just simply not the case. Now, do you see it? I mean, wouldn't, shouldn't, um, and I guess I don't know how, how uh, you do this. I mean, it's one thing in terms of when that that argument is put out there by a, a partisan. You would sort of expect that. You right. know, if, if Mitt Romney puts it out there, uh, you ought to sort of take it with a grain of salt. But what what is the when it's the New York Times or, or uh, you know, more credible media who, who are committing these fallacies? Uh, you well, know, I, I, how often do you see that? Well, I think here's the thing is everyone's a partisan. This idea that people have that uh, their media is not biased but other media is biased is just, I, I think, just completely wrong. And there's there's no such thing as an unbiased media. So one thing I try to, uh, I try to really emphasize in the book and to my students in, in the classroom is that if you're getting all of your political news from any single source, you're almost certainly not well-informed, no matter what you think, because all media is biased. All media is partisan. Now, there are a lot of different ways that that happens. We tend to talk about ideological bias, like the liberal New York Times or the mm-hmm. conservative Wall Street Journal. But if we think about you know some other types of bias, which I argue are actually more important because they're harder to spot. Things like uh, one, one real common balance uh, – one, sorry, one really common bias in the news media is what's called balance bias. And right. balance sounds like a great thing and it's the idea of, well, you tell both sides of the story. And that is a good thing as far as it goes. But what tends to happen is that both sides of the story are given equal billing. Right. And yeah. there are very few issues where both sides, Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals, have equally good arguments. And so I argue – I would argue that the job of responsible journalist, of good journalism, is to sort through the quality of these arguments to make a case and to you know present those things proportionately. But that's not what happens and it's not because journalists are lazy or at least any lazier than the rest of us. It's because of the enormous competitive pressures on journalists and the idea that you, you would have the time to sort through stories and fact check all this stuff and to consider all the possible logical fallacies and right. dig it's through more, the data. It's, it's more often, uh, all right, let's just get a quote from somebody on the other side. Exactly. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been quoted as an authoritative source on things where I didn't necessarily know much more than what I read in you know, the New York Times, but uh, the, the, the reporter needed a quote and was on a deadline and said, can you give me a quote? And I said, well, sure. Uh, here's that, a quote. That, that truly shows the depth to which we've sunk. Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. But, I mean, that's how it works. You know, who do reporters use as sources? The people who call them back and give them good quotes. Um, now, as far as media, and this is an area where we may may differ. Most conservatives, and I would say even probably most, I don't know, folks in the middle, uh, 
would tend to think there's a liberal media bias in most cases. And I'm talking about the big major media outlets, uh, uh, Fox News, which is, is really sort of a, you know, a recent uh, creation. Uh, but the network news, PBS, uh, New York Times, Washington Post. Uh, and, and the book seems to focus more on, look, there are, are bigger biases in place there that are more sort of institutional and in part mm-hmm. driven by what, how, what the medium is. Right. Um, do you think there is a liberal bias uh, in the what, what we call the mainstream media? I guess I'd say I give a good political science answer is it depends. Uh, if, okay. if we're talking about editorials and opinion pieces, then yes, in most of the mainstream media, if you read the New York Times editorial op-ed page or editorials, uh, there's clearly a liberal bias. Uh, but, but I think that's, I mean, I don't think, and I, I would say I'm not so much concerned about that because, hey, it's uh, it's the editorials, the editorials. I mean, it's, it's uh, the opinion and you know what you're getting. Mm-hmm. But in, in news reporting, do you think there's a... Well, uh, the... The conclusion that most political scientists who've studied this issue have come to is that there's no significant, no measurable, statistically significant uh, liberal or conservative bias in the mainstream media. That's the... That's the generally accepted conclusion from that. Now, there are some outliers. There are some people who argue differently. There's a really interesting book, and I'll try to remember to post this in the show notes, by a guy named – a political scientist named Tim Grossclose who wrote a book called Left Turn. His argument – he uses a different uh, measurement strategy. His argument is kind of along the lines of what you are suggesting is that there is a – uh, clear or significant liberal bias in the mainstream media, and it's it, whether you agree with this argument or not. It's a book that's uh, I think well worth uh, well worth checking out. Though I, I sort of suggest that there might be this kind of bias in a way um, in the book, in that uh, there's definitely a bias toward government action being a good thing okay. in the media because the media wants to cover something happening. If nothing's right. happening in government, you know, small government is not interesting because it doesn't do much. If you're a political reporter, you want government to do stuff, so you have stories to report on. Yes. So and, that's and that's a bias. I would, and I and I, I get that a lot. I think it's 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 sort of the and maybe my conservative argument, you know, on that would be so much of uh, yeah, just the way we cover news and and the way our brains process. There's there's almost a. Um, Inherent bias that yeah we want uh, we want a narrative we want a story right. we want uh, good guys and bad guys and that tends to fit into more of the the liberal narrative it, sure. it kind of kind of they match up better yeah. than and and there's that assumption that government action is a good thing because if there's a problem you should do something about it as opposed to just sort of waiting and and hoping it will solve itself that seems like a negative thing but as you're well aware there's a you know there's a strong and i think very you know intellectually defensible strain of conservatism going back hundreds of years that says that no oftentimes we get ourselves into huge problems by doing that by creating big messes i mean this you know comes from edmund exactly. burke and so forth and i think there's a lot to be said for that but that is so not Good that the so does not make for good news stories, and so I think yeah, that don't, don't just do something. Stand there. exactly. That's, that's sort of my motto. But um. you know, it's sort of the Calvin Coolidge approach to things, kind of moving moving forward. But nowadays, it seems like everyone's an activist, and the media perpetuates that because it's the people who are trying to do something that will get the news coverage, as opposed to the people who say, you know what, if everyone should just stand back, 
take a breath, not freak out, and try to make the situation worse. Okay. Do you – and this isn't something that's really covered in the book. It's just something curious to me. Do you think that the way uh, media is reported, the news, the faster news cycle, uh, the um, so many outlets, uh, do you think that makes a difference in things like Ferguson uh, or, or Baltimore? Um, I'd say more so, more so Ferguson. Um, where you can have a narrative that, that really takes off, which later, by most all accounts and the evidence, is is an incorrect narrative, but it, it's really driven public policy. Yeah, I, I think it can be a good thing and a bad thing. It can be a good thing in that it is able, we're able to draw attention to things in a very rapid way that we certainly couldn't in the in the past. You know, we've seen this in a lot, of, and and that can work. It's a positive thing to sort of stop injustices and problems in their tracks and catch things that we wouldn't have caught otherwise. But on the other hand, those those narratives can be, you know, erroneous. The the first impressions tend to be lasting impressions, and so people get ideas in their minds. You, know, you talk about Ferguson, this idea, you know, the hands up, don't shoot meme, for instance, which, mm-hmm. you know, it, it seems like that. That seems to be actually was not you know what really happened, but that's what stuck in the public consciousness and so forth. Yeah. So I, I certainly see a positive aspect of it, but definitely people can get some very incorrect ideas set in their heads, and the incorrect ideas they tend to get set in the heads, of course, are uh, related to their pre-existing beliefs on these matters. Well, and you know, and the the um, and sort of a related piece of this, and we've talked about this in our in our discussions before. Uh, and you do mention this on the book in the book too is the the idea that when something is covered uh there is the perception that is it is maybe bigger than than it is i mean for example you've pointed out before and the newspapers have pointed out statistically uh your odds of of being assaulted or killed by a police officer are infinitesimally small right uh black or white and that there's a well there is a difference between uh black and white uh, rates of, of uh, violent encounters with police. Again, when you look at the raw numbers, they're 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 so small. But but because of of the uh, sort of a magnification effect you get, uh, you know, problems are are risks are are over overestimated. Right. Yeah. And we see this in, in so many things. And, and that's the sensationalism of, of the media. And of course, the media is a lot more sensationalistic than it was in the past because it has to be because it's a more competitive environment. So we tend to associate competitive uh, environments as giving consumers a good thing. But the problem is, in this case, is they're giving us too much of what we want as opposed to what we need. And so, like, take, for example, that idea of, you know, uh, blacks are, you know, whatever, 50% more likely to be killed by police than whites. Well, if the if the underlying odds uh, are one in 50,000, 50% more likely isn't that much more likely, but that's not how the headline's going to be uh, you know, going to be delivered. It's that 50% more and people are going to freak out. And that's certainly not to argue that, you know, for that there isn't a problem here or, or any other issue. It's just the presentation tends to make people think that many problems are a lot worse than they actually are and freaks people out to, for no good end. Do you think that there ought to be a greater responsibility in in the uh, media and, you know, some of the, again, the old uh, great institutions sort of take the lead to to prevent that sort of um, 
I don't know. Right. Hysteria isn't the word I'm looking um, for, but 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 uh, yeah, exaggeration. I mean, yeah, I, I think that's a lot of people uh, talk about this and call for this, and I couldn't disagree more. Okay. This idea of that we need media to have higher standards and be more socially responsible, like it was in the good old days, that that I think that's so incredibly wrongheaded. Let me explain why. You know, the media that we had, say, 40, 50 years ago, could afford to be more even-handed and to uh, and to take more time and so forth because they weren't facing the same competitive pressures. It's easier to do that sort of thing when your margins are, you know, twenty percent. But when you're in this hyper-competitive environment, you can't afford to do that anymore. And so asking the media to be socially responsible uh, at the, uh, you know, if they, if they might cost them viewers is asking them to slit their own throats because someone's going to be doing that sensationalistic stuff. And mm-hmm. so I think that's completely unrealistic and it misses the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that, you know, the world has changed and it's much easier for us to get bright, shiny, superficial stuff than ever before. And that's the kind of stuff we're wired to want. And so the problem, I think, ultimately is us, not not the media. If we want to change something, we have to change our habits, is, not expect there, the media to do it. Is there a, a good way to do this? And Because I would, I would point out on the one hand, I think you're exactly right. There is so much – slick, shiny stuff that is so available uh, to everyone and it's it's ubiquitous and you almost can't even look away. I mean, anytime you, uh, you know, you open your browser and you've got sort of like MSN or, or whatever the, you know, right. your homepage is sure. and with all sort of these very clickbait headlines on, on there. Um, but at the same time, this is also sort of a, a golden age of, of being able to access substantive information. Uh, for example, I know in a lot of our discussions, uh, I mean, it's, it's a point of pride with me that, you know, we always try to link to something like, uh, here is here's a serious article on this. Here is the actual, uh, you know, Supreme Court argument that you can listen to for yourself. Here's the court opinion you can read for yourself. Mm-hmm. That all, all these these sources, primary sources, are at the same time really a, a more available than they ever were before. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, the the problem isn't availability. You know, it's like we have, you know, there's, using, there's plenty of there's plenty of broccoli at the store. Exactly. To get people to eat it. Our, yeah. our broccoli choices are unparalleled, greater than they ever have been. But you know, right here by the checkout are the are the Twinkies, and yeah. that's what people. And so, if you can't, I think the current media environment requires a lot more self discipline, a lot more um, willpower from people and people just aren't uh, either aren't willing or aren't capable or don't you know don't appreciate this and so i think that's you know that that kind of ties into a wider societal problem with superficiality and distraction and that sort of thing okay well you know and i just think maybe a couple more questions but uh, one one would be after writing the book a couple years ago and and what you've seen since then where do you see political reporting going well, you know, I had uh, in the book, I think I talked about uh, a couple of developments that I was actually kind of excited about, uh, maybe naively so now if I'm looking back. Uh, when I was writing – looking back like from, yeah, two years ago. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's how quickly things move though in political media, right? So uh, when I was writing the book, it was a, a time when uh, the concept of what's called data journalism was becoming a big thing and there were some – pretty important sites or what I thought would be pretty important sites that might be very helpful to people. Um, uh, three in particular, there's a, a site called 538, 
which is a New York Times offshoot, uh, or sorry, a, uh, uh, a site by a guy named Nate Silver who used to work for the New York Times that does uh, some – a site with numbers. That's terrible. Um, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> well, it is, it's 538allspelledout.com. That screams boring right there. He, you know, uh, he does a lot of sports stuff and other things, but oh, okay. he's he made his bones kind of by doing better presidential election predictions than pretty much anyone else. Mm-hmm. And so he launched this site to try to bring that sort of you know rigorous data-driven thing but that was still accessible and interesting to people, to politics, among other things. New York Times, when they lost him, did their own site that's kind of like that called The Upshot. But the one that I had the most high hopes for was a site called Vox. Um, and this was a site that... And you must, you must be terribly disappointed. You know, I, I really <laughs> am. I, we, we talked about this before, so you, this is no secret to you. Um, there's a guy named Ezra Klein, who's a reporter for the, uh, for the... was a reporter for the Washington Post. And he broke away to do this site, Vox, which was supposedly going to be very data-driven and kind of give people this sort of political information they weren't getting. And it sort of does that, but not really. I think that they hired a group of people who I feel are fairly ideologically kind of a monoculture to the left. Uh, there's so much there's so much superfluous junk on the site, and that's okay. I get that you want to you know give people the Twinkies to get them to maybe have their broccoli, but also they decided to not have any way that you could easily separate the sort of good substantive stuff from the chaff. You actually have to look through everything. So it's basically just another kind of it's it's sort of like the Huffington Post with more numbers. And it just uh, hugely disappointed me. And, and as, as you know, and if people listen to this or if anybody follows us on Facebook, you know that sort of uh, one of my primary joys in, in life is, is uh, uh, debunking Ezra Klein. Yes. Uh, we've gone, <laughs> gone head to head because I'm, I'm a fan. I mean I, I had that criticism there, but overall I, I tend to be a fan of, of Ezra Klein. But yes, I, I, I am disappointed in him. But I, I will say that of those sites, now that of those sites, I could I can't actually recommend the Upshot, which I think is the most substantive of those, and they actually do give you a way to kind of sort out the political stuff from from the other things. And uh, but you know, for me, again, I think one of the big lessons to take away from this is what I recommend to people is try to cultivate a little bit of diversity in your sources. And this doesn't have to be a really difficult thing. Uh, for instance, you know, the, the New York Times is is a great basic source for information, but if that's all the, that's all the place you get your, you know, political news from, then you're going to have, I think, a sort of a left-center, left sort of view, which is why the Wall Street Journal is a great, you would probably call it a corrective. Uh, I would call it a balance, <laughs> certainly. A tonic to our, our yeah, political culture. Yes. You know, and, and so the, those two things I think are great. Uh, the Economist, uh, I think very highly of. It's a, a British magazine that covers, you know, uh, American political stuff, and I think covers it very well in a society succinct way. They kind of come at it from a little bit right of center. But, you know, it doesn't take that much to really uh, get, I think, a reasonably, you know, it's like a balanced meal. It's like a balanced, uh, you know, a balance of political coverage to give you a sense of what's going on in various quarters. Uh, But it does take a little bit of effort and you have to really want to do it and have that willpower and that desire to push past the the junk that you will find in, I think, uh, you know, outlets like the Huffington Post. Right. All right. Well, uh, I think that's probably a good place to end the interview. But uh, thanks, Mike. And again, 
one day maybe I'll write a book and, and you can interview me, but that's probably going to be a ways off. That would be great. Uh, but I appreciate uh, what you've done. And I, I think it's, it's really important. And this is, it, it's sort of very much of a, of a theme of, of the, the project we're doing here where we're, we're trying to get people to dig a little deeper and, um, uh, you know, hopefully come away with, with a little more, uh, a broader, more nuanced view of, of the news and what goes on. And, uh, you know, and I guess maybe I'll, oh, this is my my last question would be. I mean, do you think uh, that that will uh, give us sort of a better result, better better public policy, better democracy, um, or is it more just sort of a thing of of well, at least you you feel better about yourself? Yeah, well, I go back and forth. Uh, I, I like to think that maybe it could possibly, but then I think about what a just incredibly strong and, and resistant force uh, irrationality is. And uh, I, on my uh, less optimistic days, I think we're all doomed. But uh, I, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to end on a positive note. I, say, I think it can make a difference, at least at the margins sometimes. So I do think in the end that I am not wasting my life in doing what I'm doing. And that- I, I was, I was going to – a quote from uh, Schiller comes to mind that uh, against stupidity – uh, the gods themselves struggle in vain. Yes, uh, and there there may be some of that, but uh, uh, yeah. On the more hopeful note, um, by by writing uh, like you do and, and doing what you do, you're you're uh, sort of shining a light on this and, and raising uh, raising the bar for uh, political uh, discourse. I think so. Well, we do what we can, right, Jay? Yep, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Mike. And uh, you know, we'll be back with uh, more politics guys next week and more interviews and um, more what we hope will be uh, continually substantive discussions. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks, Jay. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. You can follow us throughout the week on the Politics Guys blog, which you can find at our website, politicsguys.com, as well as on Twitter. We'll be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.